0: Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Everyday Theology Podcast, where we as ordinary pastors connect theological truths to ordinary everyday believers like yourself. My name is Ben Campbell, and I'm joined by the one and the only Ducky Walters. Dustin, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. I'm glad to be here today. I've missed being able to talk with our—talk with you, and hopefully— not bore our listeners to death, too bad. But it's going to be back today, and especially in this Advent season, uh, we've talked before, Ben. It's one of my favorite, one of my favorite times of the whole year in the Christian calendar, mm-hmm. and it, it even really invites me to think about um, just our connection with the broader church, Little C Catholicity, when we think about the Advent season and how Christians all around the world are celebrating Christ's first coming and his his second coming, and so I. I love this season, and I'm really excited about our episode today.
0: I think we've got some good content that's going to come out over the next two or three episodes. What we're really going to do, listeners, is just walk through um, some some different passages of Advent uh, from Scripture, um, because there's there's so much that's contained in the season of Advent that's often missed. I don't know um, how far you want me to go with this, Dustin, but, you know, there, Advent is much more than just the Christmas season. And we relate it to Christmas, we celebrate it during Christmas, but it's also just much more than that. So, um today we're going to be covering one of the most pop- probably one of the most popular um prophetic passages about the birth of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9. So Dustin, if you want to, uh, go ahead, we can read verses uh 2 through 7 of Isaiah chapter 9.
1: Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It says, The people walking in, gr- in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time, as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff and their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish
0: this. Word of the Lord. So there's a, a a massive prophecy here about the, the coming of the Messiah. Um so Dustin, just give us some insight here to uh sort of the background of the passage and you know what do you think Israel's thinking as as Isaiah might be communicating this to them?
1: One of the things about Isaiah that has always astonished me is the way in which the messianic prophecies in Isaiah are so Obviously, vividly accurate, vividly clear. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration. The Holy Spirit guided Isaiah as he was writing this, and yet, for the for the Hebrew people that were in captivity at the time that he was serving the Lord, they would have probably thought this was nonsense. They would, have, I think, Ben, they would have probably thought this is nonsense, or they would have thought it was Cyrus as as their sort of. Um, geopolitical leader who's going to come and, and make Israel kind of at the center of attention. So I think it would either been two, two reactions. I think it would would probably been shocked and be like, this is nonsense. Or they would have probably thought maybe it's Cyrus, but they would not have gone all the way through fulfillment. Davidic Davidic King who's reigning, fulfilling that David promise from second Samuel seven. So I think what you have in in Isaiah 9, and then obviously the New Testament quotes this, right? Uh, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. There's still a lot of darkness in in us, Ben, uh, in our world. And I'm just – I'm so thankful that we live in the middle of what's called the now and the not yet, that we too – we walk in darkness, but we've seen a great light who's come in the flesh, Jesus the incarnate Son. And yet we realize that the extent of his kingdom isn't fully what we want, what we long for.
0: I think it's interesting too if you truly read Isaiah chapter 9 uh, especially these first you know five six, seven verses, you know what you really kind of see is a little bit of biblical theology um it's you know, I do say this quite a bit, especially regarding like the the prophets, but hindsight really is 2020. Um, it's it's very easy to to look backward at the prophets and see this. But man, you just think of of the explanation here that we live in a dark world. We walk in darkness, we live in a land of darkness. There is a large nation um you know it, there's an oppressive yoke there's rods on our shoulders the staff of our oppressor of our oppressors are are right there on us I mean it's just there's so much things to help us understand if you you know those of you who have listened to the podcast for a while you you've heard us use those four words about biblical theology creation fall redemption and consummation um that's really kind of a lot of most of those elements are in Isaiah chapter nine um, because you see that there is a, there's a dark world that is, that has come about by the fall and you see redemption drawing near in this passage. You see redemption becoming human and you see redemption, you know, in the form of the incarnation, the son of God.
1: It's really fascinating how, how Isaiah has this twofold kind of, uh, sermon, if you will, for his listener, the first sermon, I mean, judgment is coming. He says right. that pretty strongly throughout, especially even if you flip over to the next chapter in 10, he's about to pronounce bad judgment on on the, on the Assyrian empire. Mm-hmm. But not only does the prophet in his twofold sermon point to judgment, but he points to reconciliation and renewal. I love the specificity of how he describes this king toward the end of the, like, verses 6 and 7. He talks about the government will be on his shoulders and he will reign on the throne of David. That is very clear. Isaiah is telling his people, listen, this is the Messiah. I want you to pay attention to what I am saying because... What does Daniel tell us? Daniel talks about the Ancient of Days. I mm. went there, and, and I saw the one as a son of man, and his reign shall be forever. Well, the people of God who were in captivity were longing for this kind of king who would not captive, take his people captive but set them mm. free rather. And not only were they longing for that good government where justice would flow like the rivers – they were looking, this is hundreds of years after David's time. So there's continuity. And I think this even gives us, maybe you want to talk about this, a glimpse into Isaiah's hermeneutic. How he is understanding God's promise to Abraham being fulfilled in a David-like king.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you, you mentioned the hermeneutic thing. Um, I want to come back to that, but I also want to... Uh, take us just a couple of chapters back to chapter two, because I actually preached Isaiah chapter two um, on in the first Sunday of December. Um, and, and you think about Isaiah chapter two, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his path. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You notice that even in Isaiah 2, you, you have this whole idea of messianic reconciliation and the kingdom of God coming to a realized form. On earth. Now, so I I I told you off air that I was kind of using uh this season of Advent to show how Advent is not only forward looking for the people of Israel, but really it's both backward looking and forward looking for us as New Testament believers. Now we look backward and and I, I think I mentioned to you hindsight's 2020. You know, we can look back and see, oh, this is talking about Jesus. This is talking about the, the, his first advent, but, but Dustin, this is talking about the second advent of Christ as well. And it, it, it completely explains to us that there is coming a day when this government, when all wrongs will be righted. And justice will be served, and justice will reign, and righteousness uh, will will come forth from uh, the throne of the king. And if if you if you take that and you look at Isaiah's hermeneutic, uh, you see this dual fulfillment coming about in Isaiah's prophecies. I'm convinced you see that in 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 a majority of the prophets anyway. You see that dual fulfillment. Um, so it's not only fulfilled, you know, in Jesus, but it's going to be fulfilled later on for us as well in this, in the second coming, in the last days. And it's something that Isaiah's people, uh, Isaiah's people, Isaiah's audience uh, can look forward to, but it's something that we look back and we say, oh, there's, there's more than one meaning here. And uh, I, I think that's just so rich for us to, to consider during this Advent season, you mentioned the hermeneutic. I'm, I'm a little bit torn by that, just to be honest with you. I'm wondering, and, and how do you know? You know, you can't really know, but, but did Isaiah truly know what he was writing? Or did he know uh, that he was, you know, ex, uh, influenced and moved by the Spirit to write what he wrote, knowing that God would use it for the good of his people? Not knowing how, but knowing that he would.
1: Yeah, and I think that really kind of brings us to kind of how we understand inspiration. There there are some erroneous views about inspiration of the Bible, um, including diction theory, where where God is described as taking the divine pen and really kind of inscribing on the tablets or the scroll, um, whatever it is that he would have his people to hear we we actually believe in in the plenary verbal inspiration some of our people out there be like what does that mean for everyday people go look it up plenary p-l-e-n-a-r-y verbal inspiration And, and it just basically we're saying god guided the writers of the scripture they were moved along by the holy spirit Uh, And yet God spoke through their own distinct personalities, their gifting, their situation in life. Uh, And so as we think about Isaiah's hermeneutic, he is viewing judgment and captivity as a foreshadow to the glory divine that would come in the future. And I think what he does here is beautiful. And one of the things that I love that has happened in biblical scholarship been in recent years, um, in the 20th century, we saw Isaiah separated Mm
0: -hmm. into
1: all these different schools, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Isaiah even. And I personally, that flows from higher criticism, and and we can learn much from higher criticism and, and text criticism of the Bible. I think that Christians need to read books on text criticism of the Bible and so on. And yet what I'm encouraged by in mine and your time, Ben, is that we're starting to see more and more scholars, even atheist scholars, that are saying that there's more to the unity, the cohesiveness of the book than previous decades have mentioned. Because if you take Isaiah and you just split it all apart, it just doesn't make sense because there's there's a lot in there to cover if you look at the whole book of Isaiah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but as you think about, he is speaking to a people. He wants them to view God's judgment in light of, or as part of the purifying. What what what? The prophet Malachi says as the refiner's fire. Yes. Isaiah wants his people to say, "Y'all are going through it right now," but I need you to believe that God keeps His promise and the Messiah is coming. And when the Messiah comes. Everything will be right in the world.
0: Yeah, and, and so when I preached Isaiah two, I, I wanted to really try. I'm for those of you that know me, <laughs> I'm not very a very creative person. I I don't I don't do well making things fun and creative. I just don't. It's not who I am. It's just not my personality. It's really hard for me to do that kind of stuff. But I tried um to to get our people um, to sort of put themselves in the shoes of Israel reading from a scroll or hearing it taught Isaiah chapter two. And if you do that, all you can think of is they're going to, who wouldn't expect a reigning political leader with Isaiah's words? You know, like we, we just so often give Israel or the Jews, the first century Jews, you know, sort of the, the bad rap when it comes to those things. And I'm just here to tell you, man, reading that and studying that, I would have expected a political leader, too. I would have expected someone to come up and reign in Rome if I was a first century Jew. When he says God is going to establish His house off the top of the mountain, and all the other nations are going to stream to it, which is totally backwards because streams don't flow uphill. You know, it just doesn't make any sense unless you're thinking politically.
1: But you're absolutely right on on the expectation of the political king there. Um, and so those connotations definitely arise. You know, it's just fascinating that the prophet of the Lord could be writing so many years after David and so many years before Jesus was born. By the way, don't they still – they read the Isaiah scroll like in Jewish synagogue, right?
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure they do.
1: Well, 53 brings some great challenges to them uh, regarding the suffering servant. But anyway – (laughs) <laughs> Isaiah here is, and you mentioned chapter two. We could have mentioned chapter seven, um, Isaiah nine. You know, all of these passages together are collectively pointing to the one who. I love the verb here in verse four of chapter nine. Are is going to shatter the oppressive yoke mm. of the enemy. Man, sometimes this is this is a connecting point for everyday believers. Yeah. Sometimes you feel. You just feel like, when is it going to let up? When is the pain? When is the sadness? When is the sorrow in this life going to let up? But here's the thing, child of God. The Lord Jesus has shattered the oppressive yoke of Satan. He says in Mark chapter 3 that he came to bind the strong man. And brothers and sisters, Mm -hmm. it may not feel like the strong man Satan is bound today. You may feel like he's wrecking havoc in your life just want to encourage you hold on to Jesus his unwavering character his loyalty to his promise his faithfulness to his people even when they were not always faithful to him it is stronger than the oppressor's rod it is it is a totally new thing and there is no threat to king Jesus's dominion so maybe today you're feeling sad you're feeling overwhelmed you're feeling oppressed we just want to invite you to call in the name of Jesus wherever you are listening to us and thank him that his reign does not end, and that he has actually come to take away the enemy's weapon. Then get this. He has come to disarm the enemy. He is on the scene and he has taken the weapon and he has thrown it as far as the east is from the west. It has no say on the final outcome of God's people. So with the psalmist, we could say the Lord is my refuge and strength, my present help in trouble. Even though it may feel like the trouble is stronger than my refuge right now, we hold on to the promise of God that indeed he does shatter the oppressor's yoke.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you went to sort of an application of this passage because this really, it doesn't seem like it, especially to us looking backward. Or to those who might who have might have been in Isaiah's day, looking at it firsthand as a passage of hope, but it really is. Um, the day I preached this, I also read from Psalm one eleven, and I just want to give you one verse from Psalm one eleven. In chapter five, um, he said, "The psalmist says he has provided food for those who fear him." But this last line is just absolutely wonderful. He remembers his covenant forever. But <sighs> not a day goes by that God has not broken the covenant he made with his people. And that's hope. But that's hope because there's a little baby that's going to be born in Bethlehem that Isaiah is prophesying about in Isaiah chapter 9 and chapter 2. I think chapter 14 as well all over the book really chapter 53 who is not coming to restore the world as we know it but is going to restore the world to its creative purpose and that is what true reconciliation and redemption looks like it doesn't look like a a new political sphere and spectrum um in in the you know in the in the United States Congress or in first century rome or in you know the country of babylon in the 700s or 500s bc no what it looks like is that christ is has given us his kingdom he's given us the keys to his kingdom and he's showing us that while he does reign now there is coming a time in which uh all wrongs will be righted justice will be served we will be justified we will be fully sanctified and we will be moved to a glorified nature and body and we will live in a place where the oppressors no longer have the power
1: amen amen and i as i as you were sharing that Ben, two thoughts came to my mind one from psalm 111 when the lord says forever i don't know from that passage because i haven't read it in hebrew but a lot of times in hebrew it is let olam the lamed preposition is a directional sometimes to or toward if you're a hebrew scholar and you're listening to this i know about the exceptions i know it ain't always directional Lamed, (laughs) but the hebrew there ben is to the forever let alam is how long yahweh's reign is going to be that's the first thought and the second is the irony from this child that is born conceived virginally to Mary and Joseph in the first century, from this one, by the way, this is the child that the Magi went and worshipped. And they poured out their their gold and their frankincense and their myrrh, and they worshipped yeah. him. And then we read in the Gospels that when Jesus was raised, sometimes before, that people worshipped him, and he didn't stop it, which goes to a discussion on the incarnation. I hope y'all go listen to that podcast episode. Yeah. Because all of this is connected. But oh, the irony. Oh, the irony that this child is going to be the king overall. The king who not only establishes justice, notice verse 7, Ben, but also sustains
0: it. Mm -hmm.
1: That talks about God's providence.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the... It's it's interesting. I I just happened to pull up my Logos Bible software while you were mentioning uh, those two little tidbits. If you look at Leolam, uh, you realize that it is an absolute uh, participle in the Hebrew, and it is or an absolute noun, excuse me, and it, it's a futuristic type of word. It means now but it means into the unending future it's a it's an indeterminate amount of time so he will never in other words you can say it that he will remember his covenant forever or you could say he will never not remember his covenant oh yeah that's good
1: by the way have you ever been in a church service ben where people are like where the pastor or somebody says Tell me – this happens a lot. Thanksgiving services, Christmas Eve services. Tell me your favorite attribute of God. Mine mine has been for a long time that he's covenant keeper. Mm. Uh, What a beautiful – what a beautiful truth. By the way, at the end of our episode today, I want to close each of our three Advent podcasts we're going to put out um, with a hymn. It's going to be a different hymn. Uh, Ben and I are not going to sing it for you, but I am going to quote – (laughs) <laughs> uh, and so you'll have to stay tuned to the end of the episode to see. I brought my our, banjo. <laughs> you'll have to <laughs> see what our what our, uh, hymn is for today. But I, but I have one that comes to mind in a lot of our discussions. So. Well, we are so thankful that all of you have, have listened in to us, wherever you may be today. We pray that as you think about Christmas and the beauty of the coming one who has crushed the oppressor's rod in Isaiah 9, that you'll realize that he has crushed crushed the oppressive acts of Satan and that you can, too, walk in freedom through Jesus. I want to close this today, Ben, with a hymn. This hymn is from Brother Charles Wesley, originally written around 1744. This will be familiar with many of our listeners. I will read verse 1 and... Verse 3 of Come, Thou Long-Expected Jesus. And this is the hymn. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom We pray these truths have reached you for your good and for God's glory. And we hope that you'll come back next Friday for a fresh new episode of the Everyday Theology Podcast.